Thank you. Thank you for your uh, enthusiastic, warm welcome. You can open your Bibles to Isaiah 41. Um, it's really good to be with you as a, as a pastor at Covenant Fellowship, sending whatever number you just mentioned that we sent, a large group of you. Uh, we were eager to do that because we knew you were the kind of people that were going to take the gospel and, and spread it in this part of the Philadelphia region. But I also want you to know we still miss you. We still love you. And we carry you on our heart. And so um, I'm glad you're at work, but we, we, we do miss you at Covenant Fellowship. When Tim extended uh, just a kind invitation for me to come and speak, uh, I wanted to accept it for this reason. Um, I wanted to come and personally thank you as a church for your partnership with Sovereign Grace that you're a part of Sovereign Grace Churches. And I don't want to just say that generally. I want you to hear why I'm grateful for you. And there'll be several reasons, but for the sake of time, let me point out just a couple. And these two reasons for why I'm grateful are also reasons why you are, as a church, whether you realize it or not, strengthening our family of churches. Uh, the first one is just your, your gospel presence here in the Drexelville area. You are a church committed to the gospel to preach the gospel, to apply the gospel to your life, to, to reach out with the gospel. The 69th Terminal Outreach is a wonderful example of that. And there are people sitting here this afternoon because you were faithful to preach and share the gospel. That's a wonderful work, and that, that strengthens sovereign grace because that's who we are. We're, we're not a very impressive group of churches. But we want to be faithful to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you're participating in that. Uh, but here's the second way. Because you are gospel people, a church committed to the gospel, you are a living picture of the power of the gospel. And what I mean by that is that, as, it, as you know, it says in Ephesians 2, that the gospel breaks down the dividing walls of hostility, doesn't it? And it unites people of all races, of all ethnicities, and of all colors, and of all socioeconomic backgrounds, it unites us all in one in Christ. There's a wonderful unity that the world longs for that you are a picture of because of the gospel. And so you are a real example to sovereign grace. We don't have many churches that are as ethnically diverse, racially diverse as you are. And so you are leading the way in many in, in that sense. You are providing an example to us for how to build a church that's ethnically diverse. And the things that you're doing, not only with your gospel outreach, but uh, your grace and race fellowship. Joel, Tia, thanks for, for leading that effort and just really being willing to not be afraid to sit down and talk through some tough issues, knowing that you have gospel hope and unity in the gospel. So thank you. Those are just a couple of ways you are strengthening our family of churches. So thank you, thank you, thank you. That's why I came. We could stop here. We could go back to singing if you want to. But I, Tim's telling me that's not a good idea. All right, Isaiah 41. In these first 20 verses, and those are the verses we're going to read in just a moment. In these first 20 verses, we encounter some of the most faith-building, hope-giving, fear-conquering truth that you'll find in all of Scripture. So those of you that are here this afternoon that are fearful, and anxious, 
may be hopeless and weary, these divinely inspired words, I believe God's going to use in your life not only to comfort you, but to embolden you. The title of my message is Fear Not. And this is essentially what we're going to learn from these 20 verses. God's activity and presence emboldens the fearful. Isaiah chapter 41, we're going to read the first 20 verses. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, let them speak. Let us draw together, draw, draw together near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He who gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely his path. By paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They've drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying, The soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the Lord who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new and sharp and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. 
I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the middle of the valleys, in the midst of valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together that they may see and know may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created. May God bless the preaching of his word. John Adams, who would become the second president of our nation, had gained a reputation as an effective attorney in Boston in the mid-1700s. He made a risky decision in December of 1770 to defend the British soldiers who had fired their rifles into a crowd of Boston citizens, killing five of them in what's become known as the Boston Massacre. The British soldiers were charged with murder. John Adams, in his effective closing argument that led to the acquittal of the soldiers, he said this in a tense Boston courtroom. Facts are stubborn things, and whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passion, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. I share that quote from a courtroom scene because the context of Isaiah chapter 41 is that of a courtroom. We know that from verse 1, where we see that God himself has summoned all of the nations of the world to come and to listen to him in silence. And the language that's there, let them approach, like approaching a bench in a courtroom, and let them speak and let us draw together near for judgment, tells us, that God has gathered the nations into his courtroom where God will present his evidence and call the nations to make a decision about him based on the facts that he presents. And the reason that God has drawn the nations into his courtroom and is presenting this facts is found in verse 1. Here's the reason. Let the peoples renew their strength. You're probably familiar with that similar language that you have read before at the end of Isaiah chapter 40, where it says there in verse 31, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Here at the beginning of chapter 41, listening to God present his evidence and making a decision about him based on the facts that he presents is another means that the peoples can have their strengths renewed. But, but why? Why did the people, why did the people need to have their strength renewed? Well, at this point, the people of God are, people of God, meaning the nation of Israel, are in exile in Babylon. And as they remained in exile, as the years wore on, they became fearful anxious and hopeless. They thought they were destined for exile. And so God knew that they needed to hear facts 
which John Adams calls stubborn things that are immovable and necessary when we are being ruled by the dictates of our emotions, as Adams says, contextually meaning fear and anxiety. Maybe that's you here this afternoon. You're saying, I'm one of those that needs to have my strength renewed because the troubling situation that you're facing at work or in your marriage or in your extended family or even the, the uncertainty for many of you about your future that seems so unclear to you, it's, it's producing fear and it's producing anxiety in your life. See, if that's you, God is calling you into His courtroom today and He wants you to hear His evidence and He wants you today to make a decision about Him and about the way He works in your life so that He can embolden you and comfort you. And the evidence that you will hear in God's courtroom is such God-centered and God-saturated because in these 20 verses, the personal pronoun I is actually used 20 times where God is referring to Himself. So, for example, the phrases like, I am, I the Lord, I the God of Israel is used approximately eight times referring to God's presence in our lives. And then these phrases like, I took, I will, I make is used approximately 10 times referring to God's activity in our lives. See, this God-saturated text is intended to renew our strength by presenting these stubborn facts about the activity and presence of God so that it can renew our strength and embolden us when we are fearful. So, four fear-conquering truths that we find here in these first 20 verses. Here's the first one. God's sovereign activity. God's sovereign activity. Did you note how God begins presenting His evidence by asking all the nations a specific question? You see that in the first part of verse 2. He asks, Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? Now, even though He's not specifically identified, we know historically that the one God stirs up from the east is Cyrus the emperor of Persia. The text also gives us clue that this one from the east is in fact Cyrus, who is known for his complete destruction of his enemies, which is why he's described there in verse 2 as one who tramples kings underfoot and makes them like dust. Cyrus was also known for how swiftly he would defeat his enemies, which is why verse 3 says, who passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod, which literally means that he moves so fast, it's as if his feet never touched the ground. See, the, the answer to God's question is significant because, again, Isaiah is writing to the nation of Israel who's in exile in Babylon in the 6th century B.C. And as the decades wore on, as they remained in exile, they became discouraged and hopeless and, yes, fearful. However, we know historically that Cyrus will ride swiftly from the east and triumph over Babylon, 
conquering that nation in 539 BC. And when Cyrus arrives and conquers Babylon, he liberates all the people, including the Jews, and he allows them to return home. In other words, what we're seeing in this text is that God announces decades and decades before it would happen through the prophet Isaiah that he would stir up one from the east who would defeat Babylon and set his people free. Now note, you read those 20 verses, note that Cyrus's name is not even mentioned. It's not even mentioned. In fact, Cyrus won't be mentioned until Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28, because Isaiah wants people to know, God wants people to know that this will be his work and his activity and his presence and his doing in our lives. And that point is emphasized even more when God asks another question in verse 4, and then he answers his own question with ringing clarity. Look again at verse 4. Who has performed and done this? Can you imagine hearing this question after exile, right? After you've, been, after you've been released from exile? Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. Answer, I the Lord, the first and with the last, I am He. That's a statement that tells us that it is God who sovereignly rules the world and he activates who he wants to activate, when he wants to activate them to accomplish his good purposes and plans in this context to set his exiled people free. See, it is God who works sovereignly in our lives. And when we know that, it can not only comfort us, it can embolden us when we are fearful. See, God's sovereign activity and presence emboldens the fearful. See, see, God's sovereignty is not just a theological truth, it's a stubborn truth, as John Adams says, that tells us that the things that are happening in your life right now, they're not random at all. They're not random. Those things that are causing fear and anxiety in your life, those things are not random, but they're being brought about by a God who is sovereign over all of history, and you can know that he will use them for your good and for his good purposes in your life. One of the things I love doing as a pastor at Covenant Fellowship is I lead a faith and work group Bible and book study early on Friday mornings for people of all vocations um, in our church. And uh, many of you might remember John Newsom. He's a part of that faith and work group and when I was preparing this sermon, he sent me an email after a faith and work group meeting, and he said, Mark, I, I prayed for your sermon prep this morning. I prayed that God would help you to remember that folks like me need encouragement in the things he's called us to do vocationally in a nine-to-five world that often seems intent on destruction. That God would protect us from fear and strengthen and help and support us in the trials a good God sends our way. John gets it, doesn't he? He recognizes that the trials he's facing at work, those are not random, randomly happening in his life, but they're being sent by a good God 
And it's the truth of God's sovereign activity that we will renew John's strength as he walks back into a difficult work situation tomorrow morning. However, if you're still uncertain that God's sovereign activity can conquer your fear, note how God describes himself in verse 4. We can't miss that. Look at verse 4 again. He asks the question, who has performed and done this? Calling in generations from the beginning. Here's the answer and how he reveals himself. I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. See, this is one of many verses in our Bibles that reveals the self-existence of God. Meaning that God had no beginning and he has no end because he, he always has and he always will exist. Now that theological truth has many applications in our life. Let me just give you one. God's self-existence means that He is not dependent upon anyone or anything. That's what it means. Michael Horton says it this way, precisely because God is not dependent on anyone or anything He has created, we are assured that nothing, nothing, <laughs> will keep him from fulfilling his promises and being there for us. So when the trials that you're facing at work are being caused by a difficult boss or a difficult co-worker, you can be assured that those people will not keep God from being with you and accomplishing what he has promised and what he has planned for your life in his good time. And even when you are suffering unjustly or when those who are opposing you are using unrighteous means, maybe even evil means to oppose you, you can be assured that your self-existent God will not be stopped by that, that he will be there with you. In fact, he will fight for you. Again, Michael Horton says this, evil powers Never have the last word. As I was preparing this sermon again, felt like the Lord stopped me and said, there are people here this afternoon that need to hear that sentence again. Evil powers never have the last word. God remains qualitatively distinct from creation. And this is good news for those to whom the future seems destined to be controlled by oppressors. The people of Israel thought their future was destined to be controlled by their Babylonian oppressors. And yet God, distinct from creation, acted when he acted and when he wanted to stir up Cyrus. And he sent him and he quickly conquered the Babylonians, setting God's people free. See, that, that same God is your God today. And that same God will work in any unjust, unrighteous, unsafe, or even oppressive situation that you currently find yourself in. Do you see how God's sovereign activity and presence, do you see how it emboldens the fearful? Now you probably noticed this. Did you notice how the rest of the nations responded to God's evidence that he presents there in the courtroom. We find their response there in verses 5 through 7. Let's look at it again. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. So they hear the evidence and they're afraid. 
the ends of the earth tremble and have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. They strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be, be moved. See, they hear what God is going to do in stirring up Cyrus. And the scripture tells us that they're afraid. And they deal with their fear, not by running to, their, to a self-existent God, but they run to false gods whose very existence depends upon the work of human hands. And then they foolishly attempt to reassure themselves that their man-made idols are good and strong and will protect them from the Persian army. I mean, the irony here is unmistakable, isn't it? In fear, they turn to gods, false gods, idols, who can't relieve their fear, and they turn away from the God who says to them, Fear not! It's illogical, isn't it? But here's the reality. We are all prone to do illogical things and make illogical decisions when we are driven by fear. And it's in those moments when we are being driven by fear and attempting to maybe make or about to make an illogical decision that we need stubborn truth. When we're being ruled by the dictates of our emotions, we need evidence. We need the stubborn truth of God's sovereign activity to speak into our fears and point us to God who says to you in the midst of whatever is causing your fear and anxiety, I got this, so fear not. That's the stubborn truth that we need. So in light of these first seven verses, let me just ask you to what or to, do, or to whom do you, do you turn when you are fearful? The text clearly shows us, turn to your self-existing God, who sovereignly rules over history and whose self-existence assures you that nothing will stop his promises and his sovereign purposes for your life. Second fear-conquering truth, number two, God's powerful presence. God's powerful presence. Now, as we get to verse 8, God now begins to speak, not just to the nations, he's really now speaking to his people, the nation of Israel, where we see that he, he speaks to them in a very tender way. He says, you are my chosen. He calls them a friend. And then twice in verses 8 and 9, he says to them, you are my servants. And then after that, he says to them in verse 10, very boldly, fear not. For, because, I am with you. See, God's presence, it can embolden the fearful because we can be assured, we can know that God is with us. And, and that fear of conquering truth, it not only comforts us in our fear, what God wants us to see is that He's just not saying I'm with you, I want you to see that how I'm going to work. And so these verses, they, sh they show you how God is going to work and in the Israelites' lives. We see that in verses 10 through 12. Fear not, for I am with you. 
Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now note, this is how he's going to do it. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. These verses, they, they speak of, of God's powerful presence who acts by, as the text says in there, there in verse 10, upholding us with his righteous right hand, which literally means doing the right thing in dealing with our enemies. That's what it means in this context. And so God powerfully acts and he deals with the enemies of Israel here. And note, did you note the reversal theme that you, you saw throughout those texts? So contextually, the people of God, Israel, in their exile, they are the one that are dismayed. And yet God powerfully acts and he sends Cyrus and the conquers the Babylonians and now they are the ones who are dismayed and confounded. Verse 11, there's reversal there, isn't there? Those who strive against and contend with Israel in such a dominant way that the Babylonians hold them in exile shall be as nothing at all, as it says in verse 12. And we know that Israel is set free and they return home. There's reversal there, isn't there? The question is why this powerful reversal? The answer there is found in verse 13. For I, the Lord your God, I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. In other words, it's the powerful presence of God who holds our right hand and contends with those who contend with us when we are dismayed and he takes dismayed and fearful servants and he turns them, he, he makes us hope-filled, faith-filled, courageous people. See, these verses remind us that when we are fearful, we, we have a tendency to do this. We have a tendency to make our enemies bigger than what they really are. That's what, that's what you see there in the text. But when you live as a Christian with an awareness of God's presence and a knowledge that God upholds you with his righteous right hand while holding your right hand, what happens in that moment is your enemies shrink down to their right proportionality. That's what happens. Last October, I was at the Sovereign Grace Pastors Conference and we had three pastors travel from the nation of India because they're interested in becoming a part of Sovereign Grace. Uh, two of them brought their wives, and so I shared a long two to three hour lunch with them, getting to know them and their wives. They are in a part of India, a section down in the southeast corner, where there is Hindu extremists that do persecute Christians. And all of these men 
talked about, they had stories of being persecuted themselves and people in their churches. There was a pastor there by the name of Siraj, and in his city, he told, he told us this story where he's out on the town square and he's boldly preaching the gospel. And he's, he's pleading to Hindus to turn from that religion and turn to the true one and trust Christ. He got done with sharing the gospel and he began to walk home and he walked down, he said, this narrow, vacant street. He thought he was by himself and suddenly he heard something behind him and he looked back and there was this crowd of men that were running very fast towards him and they caught him and they just began to beat him. Senses. And Siraj called out in that moment in, in, in his loneliness, he said, God, would you send help? Would you come and would you deliver me? Would you get me out of this situation? He said, Mark, you're not going to believe this. Out of nowhere, these other men showed up. They pulled these guys off of me. They ran them. They, they chased them away. And he said, I've had, that, I've had that experience over and over again. Where my God has come and he's helped me. And he's delivered me. You know what? He said, Mark, I'm not afraid to share the gospel here anymore. Because I know my God is with me. His powerful presence is with me. And he will help me. See, I tell you that story because Siraj's God is your God. And whatever difficult situation you find yourself in right now that is causing fear and anxiety, believe in the powerful presence of God that is with you and who's there to help you, and he will reverse your situation in his good timing. Amen. So in light of, uh, light of God's powerful presence in your life, I must ask you, do you, do you see your enemies, especially the enemies in your, right, in your life right now, are you viewing your enemies with the right proportionality? See, if not, if they're bigger than what they really are, then remember your God is with you and he fights with you as he holds you and as he fights with his powerful right hand. Now, there's one other powerful picture here in these verses you can't miss. And I, I want to point it out to you. You see it in verse 10 and you see it in verse 13. In verse 10, God says to us, I uphold you with my righteous right hand. Right? That's in verse 10. In God's right hand is the power to do what is right in dealing with our enemies. That's what that means. And then he says in verse 13, for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. There's a picture there, right? Of God fighting our enemies with his right hand, and he's got us behind us, and in his left hand, he holds our right hand. These verses prevent, present a powerful picture of a God who fights for us, and in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you're here this afternoon as a Christian, he holds your hand as a son and as a daughter that he dearly loves and with fatherly instinct. Let me say it differently. With omnipotent fatherly instinct, he fights for you. See, God's activity and powerful presence, powerful loving presence, it emboldens the fearful. Third fear conquering truth we see in this text God's transforming help. God's transforming help. Now, now note 
how God addresses His people here in verse 14. Fear not. You weren't. Wait, wait. I thought we were friends. Right there in verses 8 and 9. I thought you chose us. Fear not, you worm. <laughs> Fear not, you worm, Jacob. You men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. God calls them worms, not only to make them and us aware of our frailty, of our weakness, but also to awaken our need for divine help from our Redeemer, who is the Holy One of Israel. That, that language, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, would have conjured up memories for the original audience reading this text of the Jews who were in exile, and they would have conjured up God's saving acts over Israel's history, the, the exodus out of Egypt, right? And then that, the place at the Red Sea where Pharaoh and his army are bearing down and yet he parts the Red Sea and he delivers them. In other words, in their time of exile, what God is saying to his people is that I'm not only your past redeemer, I am your present redeemer as well, so fear not. And, and did you note the nature of God's transforming help there in, as Redeemer in verses 15 through 16. Look, look at those again. Behold, I make you a threshing sledge, new and sharp, having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. It's a picture of how God transforms his weak people, which is why he calls them worms, and makes them this powerful threshing sledge that threshes mountains and crushes hills and winnows the enemies, and they just are blown away. All of that is imagery that is in our Bible intended to convey this, that whatever obstacles face God's people, whether enemies or false accusations, or oppressors, even, even our own sin that can oppose God's work in our lives, those obstacles will be swept away because God transforms the weak and makes them strong. J. Alec Martyr says it this way, whatever barriers may confront the Lord's people, they are not to be measured in proportion to the people's inherent weakness but in, in proportion to the Lord's promise to transform. Now certainly the transforming work that God does for His people as their Redeemer, seen in this text, not only points back to His past saving events like the Exodus, but certainly points forward to the saving work of Jesus Christ and what He has done as our Redeemer on the cross. Brothers and sisters, here's what we've got to remember. Our biggest obstacle was our sin. Our biggest obstacle was our sin that held us in captivity like Israel is being held in exile. As we awaited, our sin held us there as we awaited 
judgment and eternal condemnation. But at the appointed time, the Father stirs up His Son, right? At the appointed time, the Father sends His Son, Jesus Christ, and Christ steps into our dark world, and as our Redeemer, He sheds His blood on the cross, conquering our sin and its condemning power, granting us forgiveness and setting us free, as Romans talks about, from the dominion of sin. See, it is the cross, that symbol of weakness, that is the place where we see God's most powerful, transforming work that has ever been done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. For it is the cross where our Redeemer transforms sinners and makes them saints. It is the cross that transforms the vile and makes us clean. It is the cross where our Redeemer transforms the fear of death into hope of eternal life. And by the way, if you're here with us this afternoon and you've never repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and one of the fears that you grapple with is the fear of death, that is a right fear to have. Because at death, there will be judgment where you will give an account for your life. Yet the good news is that Christ has come and He has paid for your sin. And if you will turn from your sin, and if you will simply put your faith in Christ and His finished work through His death and resurrection, you will be saved, the Bible says. The Bible says, call upon His name today and you will be saved. So if you're not here and you, you've not trusted Christ, call upon His name and the fear of de death, it will be dispelled in your life. Because it's the cross where our Redeemer transforms an enemy. And we were all His enemies who were dead in our sin and transforms us into friends who now have hope, who have assurance in eternal life with Him. It's why we could sing earlier, it is well with my soul. Isn't that right? Here's the point. The gospel tells you that you have hope, or the gospel tells you that whatever obstacle you are facing that is producing fear and anxiety in your life, the gospel tells you that you have hope because if God dealt with your biggest obstacle, meaning your sin, then He certainly has the power to remove the obstacles and challenges that you are currently facing. So, fear not. Your Redeemer, brothers and sisters, in your life today is not only your past Redeemer, He is your present Redeemer, and He offers you transforming help. Fourth and last fear-conquering truth that we see. God's timely provision. God's timely provision. So, in this text and in God's courtroom, God not only presents evidence of His sovereign rule over history, including our lives, he, he not only gives us evidence of His powerful presence and of His transforming help, He presents evidence of His very timely provision, and it's a provision that only He can provide as Creator. You see that in verses 17 through 20. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of valleys. 
I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry lands of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this, the Holy One of Israel has created. The imagery, the imagery there that you see in the text of of the wilderness and the desert probably marks partly the experience they're having in exile, right? But once they are exiled, as they make their way back to Israel, they're going to pass through the wilderness and the desert where there's no easy access to water and there are no trees to provide shade. And yet the Lord promises them that He will provide rivers and fountains and pools to quench their thirst. And then he promises this. He says, I'm going to give you seven, seven different kinds of trees. Pick out your favorite one. That'll be where you can rest and have shade. See, the point of the text is that God can refresh the poor and needy when we are fearful and anxious by providing in ways that only he as our creator can provide. So you've got, to keep in, you've got to keep in view the purpose of this courtroom scene. Remember from verse 1? Let the peoples renew their strength. A part of the reason God is presenting His evidence in the courtroom is He wants our strength to be renewed. And so God speaks to His people while they're in exile, knowing that they needed to have their strength renewed, knowing they were fearful and anxious and hopeless and as a result, they were weary and exhausted. And he speaks to their need as creator, and he says, I'm going to bring you timely provision to renew your strength. That's good news. Because you all know this, prolonged trials in, in our lives, they, they tap us like nothing else taps us. They, they create a physical and mental and, and emotional weariness like nothing else does. It's, when, it's in those difficult times that your, your soul can feel like the wilderness being described here, right? I kind of sang about that earlier in that, in that wonderful song. Your soul can feel dry. You can feel exhausted. See, if that's you here this afternoon... Note what you're to do with your dryness. Note what you're to do with your weariness. Note what you're to do with your fearfulness and your hopelessness. It's there in verse 17. When the poor and needy seek water, I, the Lord, will answer them. That language is similar to what Jesus says in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Today, if your soul feels like a desert, if you're weary, if you're dry, if you're drained, if you're at your wit's end, draw near to Jesus. Tell him about your thirst. And he will quench it with living water. To the tired and to the exhausted your Redeemer says this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, 
and I, I will give you rest. Today, if you're burdened and weary, draw near to Christ. Draw near to your Redeemer. Tell him of your need and he will give you rest. Do you know why we're to do this? Do you know why we're to go to Jesus with our needs? Because the text answers that question. The text tells us that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. You see, we, we Christians... We're not to be these perfect specimens who are never fearful. Because we're not that, are we? We do fear at times. We are hopeless and anxious. We are not to be a people who walk through the trials of this fallen world pretending that we're not hopeless and exhausted at times because we are. So who are we to be? No, we're to be servants. And friends and worms <laughs> and at times poor and needy but also people who have today set, sat in God's courtroom and we've heard the evidence and based on the stubborn truth that we've heard presented in these 20 verses we are also people who fear no evil we fear no evil because we know that God is with us, powerfully working on our behalf, knowing that even when we are exhausted by our trials, God has our right hand and he will never let us go. And he will meet our thirst and he will strengthen our weakness so that the people around us may all seeing know that what happens in our lives is God's doing. And through our lives, we give God glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful text. We thank you for your word that is alive. Written thousands of years ago for a particularly group of people it now speaks to us today. It's the timelessness of God's Word. And I, I pray for those who may be here and who are fearful and anxious, whatever they're facing, Lord. I pray that you would draw near to them. I pray that you would make them aware of your presence. May the Spirit fill them and embolden them. May you strengthen them. Lord, as they walk out of this place and maybe right back into that situation. May they leave here knowing that you are with them and you will uphold them with your righteous right hand. And I pray for those who are weary and dry. Lift their weariness and quench their thirst with living water today, I pray. Allow them to even spend a little bit of time tonight drawing near to Jesus. And may that time be sweet and may it be refreshing. I pray this all in Jesus' name.